Hi, welcome to my channel. My name is Lisa Alistway. And on this channel, you will find a variety of inspirational and informational videos you can use and apply to your life. My guest today is Dr. Loretta Bruning, who is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and author of several books, including Habits of a Happy Brain, Retrain Your Brain to Boost Your Serotonin, Dopamine, Oxytocin, and Endorphin Levels. I will be linking her website down below in the description box for your reference. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, would you mind sharing with us just kind of a brief um, background about yourself and how you came up with the concept of the Inner Mammal Institute? Sure. So I had been a college professor for 25 years and a parent, and I had these idealized notions about life that young people, I guess, tend to start out with. Um, Excuse me, there's an ambulance going on behind me. I don't hear it on my end, but okay. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, when you're young and you see unhappiness going on around you and you say, I'm not going to be like that, you know, and everything's going to go right in my life because I'm not going to do X. Mm -hmm. And then let's just say that I observed that my theories were not working. And I saw that my children were not happy all the time and my my students were not happy all the time and people are not happy all the time. So that forced me to dig deeper into the research. And I took early retirement from teaching so that I could spread out and interpret the evidence in a way that seemed real to me. Okay, and so the Inner Mammal Institute, what exactly is that? Um, so it's, me and my books and my free resources. So a huge amount of free resources are available on the Inner Mammal Institute website and videos and podcasts. And uh, it actually started out in my academic brain as a library because I found some studies about animals that showed that our serotonin is released when we are special when we are frankly competitive. And I never heard that in mainstream psychology. So I started collecting all the books that published this study. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the early um, thoughts. So I know from your background, you've spent a lot of time working with animals in the zoo and volunteering. And, um, and I know you have a, a strong interest in our evolutionary perspective and how we are just another mammal, basically. And if we study mammals, we'll see we're not much differently in our responses. Can you talk on that a little bit? Sure, not exactly like that. So we have this big human brain that's capable of abstraction. And then we have underneath it, the same brain that's common to all mammals. So it's like we have two brains and it's like they can't talk to each other because the mammal brain can't use language, doesn't have that skill, like animals don't talk. So the amazing thing is that the animal brain controls our emotions, which is why everyone is always confused about their emotions because like, I didn't choose to feel that way and yet I do. And our verbal brain just doesn't want to accept that our animal brain felt this way because you think, well, I shouldn't feel that way. So how can we get our two brains to work together is really the goal of my work. Fantastic. 
So let's talk about the main pain chemicals and the main happy chemicals. So let's start with the happy chemicals first. Uh, dopamine. What exactly is that and how do we stimulate it? Sure. So dopamine is the good feeling that you're about to meet a need. And if you think about the past in the age before supermarkets and refrigerators, our ancestors had to look for food all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, they wandered to look for food just like animals. And even a hundred years ago, like if you think like, how could a person make bread and butter? You know, they had to grow wheat, grind it, store the flour in a way that didn't get eaten by pests, you know, put firewood in the oven to bake the bread. I mean, life was hard. And so today our needs are met so easily, but in the past, dopamine is what was released when you saw, oh, there's some food, I'm gonna go for it. Or, you know, with a bigger human brain, if I plant this wheat today and water it every day, I'll get flour in the future. So, and if I get firewood now and turn on the oven, I'll get bread in the future. So each step toward meeting a need stimulates dopamine. And in a world where food is easily available, then we look for all these other steps to get the dopamine and we're defining our needs in other ways because once your physical needs are met, we tend to focus on social needs. Yes, yes. So you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, we're focused on survival and safety. And so, like you said, a lot of that has kind of been taken away through modern means. And so what I hear you saying about dopamine is that we're kind of like chasing rewards constantly, getting those dopamine hits um, to kind of deal with it. Yes. And I know that people think they shouldn't, uh, but it feels good. <laughs> and the dopamine is quickly metabolized. So whenever you reach that fabulous goal that you really wanted, the dopamine is soon gone. And that's why we tend to do it. So there's a trend now to blame your dopamine quest on some corporation, but no, we're creating it internally. And can I add one other thing? You said with evolution that we're always yeah. focused on survival, but yeah. we're also focused on the survival of our genes. So yes. we're not consciously thinking of that, and monkeys don't know what genes are, and yet they invest their whole lives in what biologists call reproductive success, mm -hmm. which means attracting partners, building social alliances, and protecting the young. And you can see how people drive themselves crazy to build social alliances, have reproductive success, and then have young who they protect so that they will have young and that makes you happy, that stimulates your happy chemicals. The dopamine, very good. Okay, so let's talk about the next one, oxytocin. Sure, so oxytocin is often called the love chemical or the bonding hormone. And in the animal world, it's easy to see that animals look for a herd and they feel safe when they find a herd. And we often hear, you know, the internet wisdom is that we need community, et cetera, et cetera. But if this were all so easy, then we wouldn't be always analyzing it. So why is it hard? So animals actually have lots of conflict within their herd. Part of that is related to the next chemical that we'll do, but part of it is related to dopamine. So an animal's looking for food, and if you're always following the herd, 
the only food has basically been stepped on and frankly peed on by the other animals around him. You know? yeah. So an animal would really rather go off to greener pasture and find their own food. And mm -hmm. that's what we're always doing is deciding like part of me wants to go off to greener pasture and new horizons stimulate my dopamine. But when I do that, I might get instantly killed by a predator which is the human feeling that when you're isolated, you're threatened, it's risky. And so we have a longing to go back to the herd. And when we do, it stimulates our oxytocin. That feels great. But then the oxytocin is quickly metabolized. And then the herd gets on your nerves. So we're <laughs> always, uh, you know, competing with the two. Yeah. I think uh, when you hear like people have been married 20 years and it's just like, they complain that marriage is boring, you know, because you've gotten so used to that person. And so yes. the, the oxytocin goes down. And then you could possibly idealize another person, but then when you were with them, then oops, <laughs> same thing happens. So my understanding is that for oxytocin to be really efficient, you have to have trust um, as a big prerequisite for it. So oxytocin is trust. And here's a way to think about it. Um, when you see two monkeys um, cleaning each other's fur, so one monkey does it. And then sometimes if I clean your fur, you clean my fur, but sometimes you don't. So reciprocal trust is I do something for you and you do something for me. So it's the expectation that um, we will have this bond. Mm -hmm. But it's complicated. First, if I let you come close enough to touch my fur in the monkey world, you could kill me in an instant. Mm -hmm. So I won't let you get that close unless I already trust you. So what does already trust you mean is my oxytocin pathways built from my past experience. So we could talk about pathways later, but basically... Mm -hmm. I'm always making a decision about who to trust. My animal brain is always making a decision. Do I trust you or not based on old oxytocin pathways from past trust experiences? Mm -hmm. And the other part of it is if I groom your fur, maybe you won't groom my fur, but maybe you will do me another favor in the future. So monkeys are always making decisions about whose fur they groom. Sometimes a monkey grooms the fur, and then in exchange, they babysit for their child. Mm -hmm. yes. Monkeys literally have babysitting. So sometimes if I groom your fur, then when we're attacked by predators, you'll defend me. Mm. But sometimes if I groom your fur, you do nothing for me. And monkeys actually can keep score. And over time, if you do nothing for me, they'll start grooming someone else. Mm, it's so easy to see how this works. In the yes, yes. And, and obviously you have to have trust, you know, because the next step would be touch. And that's, that shoots off the oxytocin with all of that touch. And uh, for example, if I were to get a hug from a loved one, it would feel a lot better than to get a hug from somebody I didn't trust. Exactly, exactly. And then past mutual support builds the pathways that make you trust them. And so then you're open to the hug. So touch and trust go together and touch without trust feels bad, but with trust, it's like a little bit of oxytocin helps you open up to more oxytocin. But like all the others, oxytocin is quickly metabolized. So soon after you get that hug, the good feeling is gone. 
which mm -hmm. is why people are always sort of, let's say, planning the next party to stimulate more or planning the next corporate event, whatever it is that you do to stimulate trust. Yes, I, I definitely think we were in an oxytocin, oxytocin deficiency with COVID, with everybody having to separate. You can't hug, you can't shake hands, you can't touch. And a lot of people were having deficiencies in touching and feeling. And um, yeah, I can see how that is pretty bad for our health. <laughs> well, yeah, but I also, so the, the internet wisdom is, is focused on the hugging part, but I'm more focused on actually protection is what your inner mammal is looking for. When a gazelle is chased by a predator, they run to the herd because they want protection. They're not really supporting the herd, they're actually endangering the herd by bringing the predator over to eat someone else. So we are really looking for protection. So I try to think of, of the quarantine situation as an opportunity to build one-to-one -one bonds rather than herd bonds. Mm. And herd bonds are like, I don't have to plan the party. Someone else plans it and I just show up. Mm -hmm. But one-to-one -one bonds, I call it my COVID friends, you know? And that it could be actually stronger bonds because you have more reciprocity and more positive expectation of them grooming your fur when you groom their fur. Awesome, awesome. Okay, um, let's talk about serotonin. Okay, so this is the really complicated one. Yes. Serotonin makes you feel good when you're special. And it's easy to see that everyone wants to be special. And then it's frustrating because you live in a world where 7 billion other people want to be special. Mm -hmm. And you think, of course, that well, you have a good reason because you're special. <laughs> now, um, in... Research about 50 years ago was discovered that when a monkey is in the one-up position, that it gets a little bit of serotonin. And the animal brain is constantly comparing itself to others. And when I see that I'm in the position of strength, I get a little bit of serotonin. But if I see that I'm in the position of weakness, I get a little bit of cortisol, the stress chemical. And the reason is that in the animal world, if there's a banana and I reach for it, if you're stronger than me, you'll bite me. And I don't wanna get bitten. So cortisol, the stress chemical makes me pull back. And then I gotta look for a banana somewhere else where I'm in the position of strength. So the mammal brain is always looking around like, where can I be number one so that I can get the banana? Mm, so it's a social dominance type of respect that you're looking for when you're seeking the serotonin hits. Exactly. But nobody wants to admit that they're looking for serotonin dominance. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it makes you a bad person if you admit it. And that's why that's really what motivated me to start the Inner Mammal Institute, because this was so helpful for me to know this. And yet, so taboo in my many years of research in psychology that it was never mentioned. Yes. I mean, we're seeing online, for example, the, the moral superiority that's happening where people think they know it all and that their position is the best position. And I think that they're getting their serotonin dump by doing a drive-by posting when they do that. Yes. And like all the others, the serotonin is quickly metabolized. So then they have to be morally superior again. And um, where I live in California, the example you always hear is 
who feels more important because they have a bigger car and people are resentful about like the bigger car is cutting them off on the road. But I try to point out to them ever so politely that hating people with bigger cars is the same mammalian impulse. Same, yes. Okay, very good. Um, okay, so let's talk about endorphins. Okay, so endorphin is the same chemical as opioid, mm. heroin, morphine, and its job in nature, it masks pain so that an animal has a few minutes to run to save its life while it's injured. We are not designed to create artificial pain to hurt ourselves, just yeah. to stimulate endorphin. So it's not designed to be on all the time. None of them are designed to be on all the time, but we're not designed to hurt ourselves to get it. It's there for emergencies only. And yet people discover often by accident that wow, this feels good, I'm gonna do it again. And our brain is actually designed to work that way. When something feels good, you do it again. Mm -hmm. But if you do it repeatedly, you harm yourself. And so that's why um, my work always focuses on the other chemicals, but not on endorphin because we're not designed to seek it. Mm -hmm. But the internet wisdom you know, is focused on exercise is the way to happiness. So mm -hmm. exercise stimulates endorphin, but it mm -hmm. doesn't stimulate the other. So it's not the way to happiness. So if that's your only tool, then you end up like you have to run more miles and do more push-ups all the time. And I don't advocate that. Yeah, there, there is such a thing as exercise addictions and run the runner high that you're speaking of that people chase and want to keep feeling that feeling and don't feel right if they don't get it, but then they have to constantly keep pushing themselves maybe in an unhealthy manner to achieve it. Oh, are you, I think your thing is microphone went silent. Oh, oh wait, no, there it is. There it is. Okay. Um, also, as far as stimulating endorphins, my understanding is that, um, when we cry, that's a release of endorphins. And I mean, in my own circumstances, I always feel better after a good cry. Um, laughter is yeah. another great endorphin stimulating uh, resource. Yes, exactly. So that's what I always focus on. So you get a little bit from laughing, mm -hmm. not a high, a little bit, and you could always laugh more and get more. <laughs> yes, yes. Those are healthy ways of getting those endorphins. Um, for example, an unhealthy way you've seen um, maybe young girls, like they cut the cutting gives them an endorphin rush. Obviously that's something you wouldn't want to do, but that's what they're seeking out. Yes. And to help people understand this and, and the extent of the damage, I use a simple example. I love a hot tub. When I step into a hot tub, it just feels so good. I can't even put into words why, but do you know how, like after you're in a hot tub for a few minutes, you don't even notice it, right? So what if I tried to recapture that good feeling by making the water even hotter? That would be crazy, right? Yes, yes, yes. So that's why we have to accept the way our brain works and be realistic instead of chasing these momentary highs without understanding how, how it works. Yes. Yes. Okay, great. So those are the, the top four main happy chemicals, as we say. So let's talk about some of the pain chemicals, starting with the stress, you know, hormone cortisol. Sure. So I'm glad you call it the pain hormone because that is its job in nature. So 
cortisol is pain. So when an animal is bitten by a predator, that's cortisol. But then animals, although they don't think abstractly, they can link the pain of a predator's bite to the smell of a predator. And if they had to get bitten in order to know that they should run, then not many would survive. So they learn that when the others run, that creates a panic, they're left alone, then they run, then they wire themselves to run when everyone runs. So we would call that fear. So fear and pain. Now in the modern world, cortisol is known as stress. So stress, you could call it, I, I know other people have their other definitions, but I would call it just a little bit of cortisol, but often, and you don't know why you don't consciously think you're fearing a predator. You don't consciously even know that you're afraid of something, but our human brain is so good at anticipating threats. That's the skill that makes us human. We solve problems by anticipating them. And so when we're safe, when we have enough food and we're safe from predators, we say, okay, what's the next thing that can go wrong? And how can I manage that? And then I think, okay, here are my possible solutions, but each of them might not work. So we're constantly going into the next problem and that's why we're triggering our stress chemicals all the time. And I think it's very important to understand how we're doing it because the internet wisdom is to blame the world for your stress and to say that the world is stressful and somehow the world had better get its act together. Yeah, right, right. Um, so it kind of reminds me of the cortisol loop that we kind of like get stuck in. And that's part of our, you know, our mammalian brain that keeps us stuck in thinking and looking at the negative versus focusing on the positives. Great. So cortisol loop is the idea that cortisol lasts longer than the other chemicals. It stays in your body, let's say about an hour it takes to metabolize most of it. And during that time, you're only looking for bad stuff because mm -hmm. like when a gazelle smells a predator, it's like, well, where is the predator? I don't want to run toward it. I want to run away from it. So you are looking for evidence. Like once you smell a threat, you're looking for evidence of threat. And if you start problem solving, you're gonna just see the bad side of all of those problems. So that's gonna trigger more cortisol, then you're gonna look for more threats and more cortisol. So that's what I mean by a cortisol spiral. And that's why I suggest that once your cortisol is surging, instead of going immediately into problem solving, do something fun for a while, depending on how much time you have, let's say half hour, 45 minutes, so that you don't trigger more cortisol, something you like. And when I say something you like, if you hate to do push-ups, don't use it to do push-ups. So many yeah. people have thought like exercise is the solution to everything and then it doesn't <laughs> work. Right, right. So cortisol is like a, a conundrum because we get the do dopamine hits, we get the serotonin hits. And as you mentioned earlier, they get absorbed really fast. And then next comes cortisol. So that's why maybe we reach the goal, working toward the goal, we, we feel amazing. And then once we get the goal, we're like, it's anticlimactic. You might even feel down because now you don't know what's next. Well, because as soon as your brain is free, you start looking for threats. Mm -hmm. That's the normal mammalian thing. As soon as your needs are met, it's like, 
okay, I want to rest. So let me look around for predators before yeah. I just rest. You yeah. know? And then the human brain is so good at finding a predator <laughs> when it looks, especially if you have the news on all the time. That is the worst. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Um, I think it's really helpful to kind of break these chemicals down for an understanding and, and just to be more compassionate and accepting of yourself so that you're not so hard on yourself with how you feel. Because a lot of times it, it's not your fault the way that you're feeling and how maybe how you handle it could be the issue, you know, how we react to it. But to understand it and then to and to uh, prepare yourself for, you know, the hits and the drops and, and then it's just, you know, ebbs and flows. Yes, exactly. When you understand it, then you know how you're producing it internally and you have power over it. Whereas if you think it's all external facts, then you feel powerless. But when you know it's internal, you don't really know that you have power over the internals. So that's the other big part of my work is understanding how old neural pathways trigger our chemicals and our power to have new neural pathways. Yes, yes. Um, What other pain chemicals besides cortisol would you like to mention? Um, I don't really talk about them usually, but I'm happy to mention them if you want. So people often hear about adrenaline. Yes. Um, Is that what you're thinking of? Yes. Okay. So the difference between adrenaline and cortisol, I use a simple example. If you hear a noise in the middle of the night, adrenaline is what says, what's that? And cortisol is what says, oh no, someone's breaking into the house. Okay, so adrenaline is that alertness that opens you to information in a very urgent way, mm-hmm. but it doesn't say that the information is good or bad. Mm-hmm. Whereas cortisol says this is bad. Mm-hmm. A, a perfect example of that in in modern society, I think, is social media addiction because people are going in for that dopamine hit. They get it. And then maybe they're arguing with someone from third grade that they haven't seen. And then all of a sudden they're getting the cortisol hit. They're getting the adrenaline hit and just feel, and then they just feel bad. And they don't know why they feel bad after spending, you know, an hour on social media. Yeah. So a a great thing to understand is I call it in books, dopamine disappointment, serotonin disappointment, oxytocin disappointment. So what you're talking about, I'm thinking first, the serotonin disappointment if the person's on Facebook and they're thinking, I'm going to tell this person why they're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> we've all seen it. Yeah. And in the animal world, there's a social ritual when two monkeys meet, they establish which one of them is dominant immediately. So one monkey decides, they compare themselves to others and one monkey is like, oh, I'm bigger than you. And they puff themselves up. The other monkey thinks, whoa, you're bigger than me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to withdraw and show my um, allegiance to your dominance, show my submission to your dominance so that you don't bite me. Mm. And so then the one who dominates gets a little hit of, so, of serotonin. So that's what the person wants when they're on Facebook and they're telling you, I know what's right, you're wrong. And then when you don't submit Mm -hmm. in the animal world, animals don't fight most of the time because usually one submits because they don't want to get bitten or worse. Mm -hmm. Um, So they only fight when both of them think they're equal. 
-hmm. And then the fight can be very nasty. Now, a different example, though, is oxytocin disappointment. If I go in your Facebook and I say, oh, Lisa, I think you're so fabulous. And I think you come back to me and you should say, oh, Loretta, you're so fabulous, too. But instead, <laughs> you, you one up me in some way. Mm -hmm. um, like, oh, Loretta, thank you for noticing how fabulous I am. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that would be like an oxytocin disappointment because I'm expecting you to like, well, if I'm expecting you to welcome me into the herd and you don't. Yes, yes. I think people are starting to understand just how, you know, detrimental these devices are. And um, I think it's important that people kind of like take a step back and realize what they have control over and to not be controlled by the device, you know, because it is in the external and we have control of the internal. Um, let's see here. So let's talk about addictions a little bit, because I know a lot of times people will equate addictions with survival. That's why they're doing it like drugs and alcohol. It's actually what's giving them purpose to go out, seek for the drugs and giving them, you know, reason to wake up tomorrow or whatever. So what are your thoughts on these chemicals and with addictions? Sure. So our brain learns from rewards. Uh, our brain is always learning from rewards, but here's two things. A drug is a reward that's bigger than you would ever get in nature, in real life. So yeah. like such a big reward that it builds a big pathway. Your brain says, wow, that's the way to go. Look for that. It would be like if a caveman only found one fish and suddenly found 10 fish, then your brain would say, oh, only look for fish here. Mm -hmm. So that's why it builds a big pathway. Other part of it is our neuroplasticity is higher in youth. So whatever brought rewards when you were young, that builds a huge pathway. So usually addictions that start when you're young, it's bigger pathway and harder to find other responses. Finally, um, the biggest reward from your brain's perspective is relief from a threat. So if you're a teenager and you're feeling bad because of X, Y, Z, and you start doing something, could be a video game, could be a beer, it could be a sex addiction, whatever it is, it relieved that bad feeling. And your brain says, wow, that's the solution. It's like if, I'm, if a lion hasn't eaten for a week and finally it finds food, it's like, wow, your brain is designed to say, wow, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. And so just by relieving the bad feeling, you don't even remember that moment. And yet you built a huge pathway. Yes. It's interesting that you mentioned like childhood and that's where a lot of this neural pathways get set. So are you pretty much predisposed for, you know, maybe to look at the world more negatively or to look at the world more positively? When a person says predisposed, they often think of it as genetics. And I think a very small part of it is genetics. And that has gotten exaggerated today because there's so much money to study genetics and those studies get attention. And there's nothing studying early experience because both it's politically incorrect and it's impossible to experiment on babies so you can't get good data. So what people need to know is a substance called myelin is like paving on our neural pathways. And it makes big pathways from whatever you experience in youth. 
And big pathways turn on in adulthood because they're so efficient. So the simple way to understand that is when I speak my native language, the words come to me effortlessly so easily that I don't realize the hard work. I was not born speaking my native language. I did hard work to build each and every pathway for each and every word. But if I try to learn a foreign language, then I really notice that it's hard work to yeah. build those pathways because I don't have myelin in adulthood to, mm. to that extent. So that's why um, when I try to think of a word in a foreign language, <coughs> it's like trying to activate a pathway that I did not build in childhood. And it's the same with our emotions. And that's why we fall back on the emotions we wired in childhood. Interesting. Interesting. Okay, cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about those uh, neural pathways. <coughs> oh, there you go. Um, those neural pathways and how we could maybe lay down new ones to create better habits. So the simple answer is to build new ones with repetition. Repetition is what it takes to develop the synapses, to develop the pathways that make it easier to repeat a new behavior, I'll let the electricity flow there. Mm -hmm. But repetition is hard, um, especially it's not what you're used to. You're, so if you're starting from scratch, you have no pathways, it's hard to get that electricity to flow. So when you build on the foundation of old pathways, it makes it a little bit easier. So the funny example of that is when a person finds the person on Facebook that they were in love with in high school, it's like an example of like building on an old pathway. Oh. So I noticed from um, doing a little research, you have a 45 day formula. How did you come up with 45 days that you need to keep doing this new habit? What's so magical about 45 days? I have stopped focusing on that because um, it was told to me in a yoga class and I couldn't find the study then when I looked for it. But here's a simple, um, what was told to me is if you clasp your fingers and look at which thumb is on top and it's um, not intentionally that you're doing that, but if you try to intentionally change it and clasp so that the other finger is on top, it's so hard to do that, that you almost feel like you're holding hands with somebody else. And why does that feel so strange? It's just a pathway. <clears throat> and so their assertion was that to wire yourself so that your automatic go-to is the other thumb being on top, that would take 45 days. And the reason I like that is because there's no right and wrong, that um, your old way feels better, even though there's nothing inherently right about it. And your new way feels wrong, even though there's nothing inherently wrong about it. And that helps us understand how powerful our old pathways are, but how we can find our power and change them. Yes, yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about mirror neurons and sure. how that relates to uh, our neural pathways? So mirror neurons are designed to take in the experience of others. And the internet wisdom about this is as always like romanticizing it and oversimplifying it. So there's this um, current 
internet wisdom that altruism is like the purpose of life and the source of happiness and the purpose of mirror neurons is empathy. But this is the way it works. Monkeys are never fed by their mother except for breast milk. So they have to find food or they starve. So how do they find food? They don't have school. They just watch others. So when they see someone else find food and they also see the pleasure that the other individual takes, wow, I got it. And then they're like, I want that. So then they repeat that behavior. And the most important food in the monkey world is nuts because protein is so rare in their world. So um, cracking open a nut is really, really hard. It can take them years to develop that skill. So they fail and fail and fail. But then when they watch others, it's not an intellectual process, but they're literally mimicking the body movements of others without consciously choosing that. And so it's so important to know this because in our youth, we sort of mirrored others. And then it's not just rewards like nuts, but it's pain. So if you see mm. a monkey next to you getting bitten, it's like you feel the pain and you're like, whoa, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. So when you were young, you watched the people around you and you saw what got rewards and what got bitten. And then especially when you were a teenager, you were very alert to what other kids got rewarded for and what other kids got punished for. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. That reminds me of if you see somebody like give to another person, obviously the person giving and the person receiving, they each get like, I guess, a dopamine hit. But the person witnessing the giving and the receiving also gets a dopamine hit just from witnessing it. So I think it's not really dopamine. I think oh. that there's a serotonin, serotonin. Like okay. moral superiority. Mm -hmm. um, the dopamine part of it would be if you plan it. If you're in a bad mood and you say, I'm going to go out and look for a person to give money to, mm. uh, that would sort of be the idea. But while you're mm. the giving is either the moral superiority, it could also be oxytocin if you're mm -hmm. feeling, uh, let's say, they're in my herd, mm -hmm. um, which is really, is really a, a victim feeling mm -hmm. of they're stressed and I'm stressed too. And um, this is a, a, a lot of, there's a lot of resentment, resentment of people who are doing well. Like many people from their adolescence, they got wired to feel threatened around mm. people who are doing well. So then they feel more safe around someone who's not doing well. Mm, interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, how meditation and prayer and the power of those in, on our chemicals and so forth. How, do, how does that work? So um, while you're praying, so they're different. So um, I mean, depending on the individual, but the way I see it is with prayer, people are often focusing on what they want, whereas with meditation, they're trying to focus on nothing at all. So mm -hmm. neurologically, I would say they're different. So with prayer, when you're focusing on what you want, that's so healthy because so much of the time your brain is focusing on what you don't want. Good point. So, yeah. While you're focusing on what you don't want, you're literally building up the pathways 
Yeah. That strengthen your ability to focus on what you don't want. Mm-hmm. Whereas while you're praying, you're building up the pathways to focus on what you want, including mm-hmm. if you're believing in spiritual help or spiritual guidance that will strengthen you, then you're perceiving yourself as strengthened or you're perceiving yourself as having protection, mm-hmm. um, oxytocin or serotonin, and you're having you're building positive expectations about getting support and that's um, helping you be more open to the support that you have. Yeah. Now, meditation, the goal is often to not activate any thoughts at all, or when you do activate a thought, then to return to neutral. Mm-hmm. So this has a different value. So Um, when a person is having negative thoughts to be able to notice them and pull back into neutral is very valuable because what many people do when they're having a bad thought, they immediately want to rush into a positive thought. And the positive thought is often, how can I order a pizza? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Is a positive thought that is a bad habit. And the space between the bad feeling and the good feeling gives you the opportunity to choose a different good feeling rather than a good feeling that has bad consequences. So Mm -hmm. you need that space. And even if it's a split second, I call that neutral. Instead Mm -hmm. of rushing to something good to give yourself time to choose the good thing. And that's how I see meditation. Okay. Very good. Um, so we're kind of coming to the end here. Do you have any like last minute, maybe thoughts or advice on this? I think it's really helpful the way that we broke this down and kind of like, just kind of reframe your life challenges and what you're thinking about it. And, um, just understanding maybe not to be so hard on ourselves during, you know, whatever we're feeling. So do you have any last minute thoughts or ideas? Sure. Um, I have a new book called Status Games, Why We Play and How to Stop, which Mm. focuses exclusively on the serotonin part, which I think is really the hardest. And the reason it often obsesses people is just because our lives are so good that our other needs are met, that we uh, can focus on that urge for specialness. Now, I think the important thing is to know that we're constantly comparing ourselves to others because that's what mammals do. And as much as you think you shouldn't do it, you keep doing it. So you really need to know that you are doing it yourself because if you don't know you're doing that, you think other people are judging you and they are because all mammals do that, but you're doing the judging, you, you, you keep going there. And the more you understand that, the more you have power to do it in another way. And then other way in just simple terms is how can I put myself up without putting others down? How can I be special in my own mouth, in my own mind, without expecting the world to applaud me? And I learned this from my hobby of reading biographies, because often we have this idea that prominent people had this great life where they got all of this support and adulation, when in fact, uh, very often everything they did was criticized and they didn't get recognition until after they died. So if you just wait around for recognition, you're never going to do anything. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on my channel today. It's been very insightful. And um, like I said, I hope this helped put some perspective in uh, how we're feeling around our different 
types of feelings and how we're processing them. So I do appreciate you coming on today and explaining that. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. If you guys like this chant, uh, like this video, please give it a thumbs up and don't forget to hit the subscribe button and uh, the bell if you want to be alerted to when the next video drops. Thanks for watching. Bye.